Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I speak with Christy Legali, founder and CEO of Rebellious. Rebellious is a food technology and manufacturing company on a mission to end factory farming by creating delicious, widely available, and affordable plant-based chicken products. And here's why Rebellious is interesting. While there are currently delicious alternatives in the market, most plant-based meats are two to five times the cost of meat. And so, even though we're seeing billions of dollars poured into the plant-based meat revolution, soaring consumer demand, if we can't bring down the cost, then it will never be accessed by the maximum potential of people. And so, after years of mechanical engineering experience at places like Dynamic Structures, where she created robot roller coasters, or Boeing, where her and her team optimize the 777 wing assembly, she has discovered a way to create both delicious and cost-competitive plant-based meat products. And so in the episode, Christy and I will discuss why exactly she doesn't believe the plant-based meat revolution is inevitable and what she's doing to change that. The flagship products that Rebellious are creating. And finally, the moonshot opportunity that Christy and team are pursuing. Y'all, I gotta say, I am so fired up after this conversation with Christy. So without further ado, I can't wait for you to listen to this conversation with Christy Legali, founder and CEO of Rebellious Foods. Christy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Like we always do with our guests, let's start with the basics. Okay. What is Rebellious Foods? So Rebellious Foods is a food production and production technology company working to make plant-based meat available and affordable for everyone. So we are a production company that designs and deploys new manufacturing technology that we obviously do our, you know, create ourselves so that we can bring down the cost of plant-based meat and fundamentally make plant-based meat available and affordable to everyone. I think a great jump off point for this conversation is starting with a piece you wrote for AgFunder. And so I'll set the stage, and you talk about this in the op-ed, but we see all the headlines, right? Billions of dollars invested into plant-based meats, soaring consumer demand. But in the piece, you make this striking argument around the premise, contrary to the headlines, the plant-based meat revolution is not inevitable. Mm-hmm. Can you break this down for us? Why is that the case? Yeah, so there's a lot of different numbers thrown around in the plant-based meat space to explain what's going on in this rather um, remarkable transition in essentially just the meat industry, but in the whole food industry as well from the perspective of plant-based foods versus just plant-based meat. Plant-based foods is an incredibly growing, incredible growing category within the plant-based, or pardon me, within the food industry. But plant-based meat is of particular interest because there is so much attention played on the ability to replace meat. And meat has become a, a really core 
portion of the food industry, particularly in the United States, but globally. We eat more meat than we've ever had at any point in history. We eat far more than we maybe even need, if we need it at all. And it's a really important problem to try to think about how do we replace meat on a very large scale? And, you know, in the United States alone, we produce over 108 billion pounds of animal-based meat. But plant-based meat is, is only clocks in at about one half of 1%. And we start to understand that while there is great demand, people really want plant-based meat. The expected um, demand for plant-based meat is expected to reach over you know, $100 billion in the next three or four years, maybe even higher than that over the next 10 years. And what the concern is, though, is that we've actually never really been able to make a measurable difference in that half, one half of 1% of the volume of animal-based meat, because the volumetric growth of animal-based meat is actually outpacing volumetric growth of plant-based meat. And a lot of people don't realize that. In percentage basis, it looks really good because percentage of growth for a very small market is or a very small volume of production looks really good. But compare that to 3% growth on 108 billion pounds, you're talking about huge volumes. I mean, you're basically adding multiples of the plant-based meat industry and volume to the animal-based meat industry every single year. You're like, out, they're outpacing us a lot. What I was definitely trying to say was that if we don't do something different in the plant-based meat space to produce more, to produce it better, to produce it in a way that is actually addressing the quality issues that we see when we try to scale plant-based meat, how is it ever going to happen? And why aren't more people worried about this? Uh-huh. And But the truth of the matter is there's a stopgap measure. The ability to make plant-based meat now exists largely with contract manufacturing producers who are trying to use meat processing equipment to make plant-based meat. And when they do that, they can get a fairly good product, they make it batch process, and then they charge an enormous amount for it. And that's understandable. That's what it's costing them to make it because they're using antiquated or inappropriate equipment for making those products that just doesn't match the plant-based meat product. And as a result, you have a fundamental mismatch here between wanting to scale, wanting to offer products at the same price as animal-based meat, but fundamentally not being able to get there because you're using the wrong tools, you're using the wrong production methodologies, and the stopgap measure for the growth that we've seen in the industry so far has just been keep the prices high. Because in 10 years and $3 billion of investment in Impossible Beyond, the price has barely even moved what's necessary to actually meet the market for a low-cost chicken nugget. Okay, so... That's deeply interesting. To put things in context, when you compare the average cost of animal-based meat versus non-animal-based meat, is there a rough way to compare the two, the bellwether metric? Yeah, sure. So in here in the United States, the rough cost on a per pound basis, all-inclusive, and you know the cost of goods sold for a particular product differs greatly from one type mm-hmm. of plant-based meat product to another. But say we're talking about a standard soy product that's been around since the 1970s. Maybe we're talking about something that's made in a right-to-work state where labor is particularly low. Maybe we're talking about a place where it's difficult to get products, so the cost of, manual, cost of sending ingredients is particularly high. Somewhere in the middle there, plant-based meat products 
products range between about $2.30 a pound, $2.50 a pound to manufacturing, all inclusive with ingredients, labor, transport, things like that. That's roughly a dollar a pound more than it is to make animal-based meat chicken nuggets. And while that doesn't seem like a big gap, it's a huge gap. It is an absolutely huge gap. It is the gap that will prevent a mother of five to buy plant-based instead of animal-based. It is the gap, assuming it's even that low, right? Like it could even be bigger. For smaller volumes of plant-based mm-hmm. meat, you may be talking closer to $3 a pound versus animal-based meat, which might come in anywhere between $1.50 a pound and even as low as $1.10 a pound. So sometimes you're even $2 off, which is even, obviously an even bigger gap. And our argument is simply that we're not going to make up that gap from scale alone. We have to change mm-hmm. the physics of manufacturing. And that's what we're doing at Rebellious. Uh, what's a, a real life example of this is you go into any meat aisle and you're choosing between chicken breast A or B. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you see 974 and 922, it is a Obvious, you're not thinking twice. You're going 922. Yep. So imagine scaled up to a dollar or two dollars. That is a massive cost yes. difference. It so is a massive cost difference. Just to double click, just to simplify the formula for plant-based success. We have great taste, mm-hmm. which has been roughly solved, I would say, on average. I'd right? say that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Plus low cost. And the food science problem, there's still challenges there, but a lot of the plant-based products are quite tasty. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. So on the cost side, and I, I think this is what's deeply interesting here, is you're essentially saying that we're, we've just been using the wrong tools and infrastructure yes. for making plant-based meat. Absolutely. We've absolutely been using the wrong tools. We use the wrong equipment for mixing. We use the wrong equipment for a wide variety of reasons. And most notably, it is the fundamental difference between what plant-based ingredients started as and what animal-based ingredients started as. So if you imagine you take a chicken and you kill it, which I mean, I, I wouldn't kill it, but other people kill it. And you would kill it. You would deconstruct the carcass. You take all the feathers off. Then you could deconstruct it further. Then you take all the muscle off, deconstruct it further. This is basically subtractive manufacturing. You're basically deconstructing a bird into a chicken nugget until it's in tiny little pieces and then forming it into chicken nuggets. That is the opposite of manufacturing methods for plant-based meat. And when you're making plant-based meat, you're doing exactly the same thing as you would you do when you make bread. You're doing constructive manufacturing. You add the right ingredients in the right way. You need them in just the right way. Then you add some more ingredients in just the right way. You make sure it's the right temperature. And you're doing what's called constructive manufacturing. And this fundamental mismatch between subtractive in the animal-based side and constructive in the plant-based side is why animal-based meat doesn't work that well for plant-based meat production. Does that make sense? Oh my, okay. My mind is blown right now. First of all, (laughs) thank you for simplifying it in that way. It's a very visual way to understand 
the binary nature of the approaches here. How did you discover this? Yeah, so great question because my background is in manufacturing technology. I worked in uh, Boeing commercial airplanes working on tools to build the airplanes faster, better, and cheaper. And so in the course of learning how to do manufacturing tools and design tools, you also learn fundamental concepts about tools, about tooling and, and the things that go into designing a good tool. And that can be everything from human tool interface to how well they are doing the job to how well they can operate on their own, how well, how stable they are, how repeatable they are. And so, but the fundamental philosophy of manufacturing technology is that the way that we do things now really should be defined by what we're trying to accomplish. And if you're taking a tool that is not designed to do that particular process, there's a fairly good chance that it's not optimized for that new process. Now, it's not always the case. I'm sure there are lots of examples where an old tool was repurposed and it worked just great. But for the most part, especially at the industrial scale, you really want specific types of equipment that are designed for the processes. Otherwise, you're wasting a lot of time and energy or keystrokes or motion by the operator or even just energy, electricity or time when you're using the wrong equipment that isn't just right for the process in manufacturing. And it's like a fundamental philosophy of manufacturing technology that the more you the more you specify the purpose of that equipment, the more efficient it will be at doing that process. But the more you generalize that equipment for a lot of different process, the less efficient it will be at that process, if that makes sense. So it's like your blender <laughs> or your Cuisinart is made better by being a general tool by having lots of different, you know, chopping tools or carrot shredding tools or whatever. But if you only had one blade in that Cuisinart, it wouldn't chop carrots that well, but it would chop carrots. It would maybe chop up meat that well, or it would mix up bread dough, but it wouldn't do it as well as it would do it with the kneading hook. You know what I mean? So that's the type of thing that we're trying to do here at Rebellious. How did you arrive at the Eureka. I mean, I saw, so I was stalking your LinkedIn. I see for a while you've been writing about animal rights, welfare. So mm -hmm. it feels like the problem area has been deeply personal to you for a while. Oh, but what inspired the leap? I mean, what talk us through that junction in that chapter in your life. Yeah, sure. I mean, this was probably five years ago or so that I jumped off from aerospace engineering. But prior to that, I was an advocate and still am an advocate. I believe very deeply in animal advocacy and human health advocacy, women's rights, women's health rights, all of those issues, even democracy rights. So I care very deeply about all of these things. And as an advocate, I felt like I had reached a point where I couldn't do any more than I was already doing. And so so I wanted to redeploy my skills after 15 or 20 years in the aerospace industry, redeploy my skills to try to work on some of these issues in a more focused fashion beyond what I could do with advocacy. Otherwise, I could also go into advocacy full time, which a lot of people do. And a lot of people um, make a really big difference. So I fully endorse that. I think that's also another really good pathway. But for me, being an engineer and being a manufacturing technology engineer and, and a mechanical engineer, I felt like if I could understand to the depths what was necessary for making plant-based meat and understand why we hadn't made that much progress on that making plant-based meat at scale, 
I felt like I hit a moment where I was like, why isn't there enough plant-based meat? Why isn't there, why is it just still so small? And why is it, interestingly enough, that we've been making plant-based meat commercially since 1899, 40 years before we started industrializing animal agriculture, and yet industrial animal agriculture in 70, 80 years took off like a shot and plant-based meat continued to piddle along as a kind of side project in the food industry. And, and not to you know, discredit anybody who's worked on that, that's still important. <laughs> and that was okay. a Ryuko moment for me, was that we hadn't put the engineering into plant-based meat production that we put into animal-based meat operations and automation. As a quick sidebar, um, at that point in history, is there a reason why the engineering prowess ended up, you know, bifurcating or forking into animal, like industrial? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of theories about why it happened, not being a historian. I'm sure there's somebody uh -huh. can answer that question. But, you know, post-World War II and mid-World War II, we were seeing a lot of public funding going into the promotion of animal agriculture. So first of all, there was the declaration by one of our presidents of a chicken in every pot. I actually was a president. It was a declaration of a chicken in every pot. That was like a, a terminology at that point. And this idea that we could feed the world if we simply scaled up industrial animal agriculture. And those kinds of issues were a really big deal in World War One and World War Two. This idea that globally, people didn't have enough protein. And the source of protein understood at that time was most easily met by, at least in the, the mind of these people, by animals, raising and killing animals. So there, there was a lot, essentially, especially in the United States, governmental backing for scaling industrial animal agriculture as a means to feeding people for, you know, humanitarian reasons. Now, not everybody agreed, which is why even 40 years before, people who were trying to tackle hunger worldwide were actually looking to things like peanut butter or peanuts or soy products. And that's why alternative protein or alternative like plant-based meat actually was developed so much earlier than ag industrial animal agriculture was because things like protose in the 1890s and later Cedar Lake Farms and other places like that were doing plant-based meat products, those all emerged in the you know, 1890, 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. And those were the earliest versions of plant-based meat. They were based on soy. They were intended to be a better solution to the meat problems at the time, which largely had to do with poor treatment of immigrant labor very unsafe meat in general. It was really hard to get quality meat that wasn't unsafe because it was being produced in slaughterhouses that weren't even regulated. So it wasn't until later that we started to see the solution to protein issues instead of for some reason, it didn't go towards these alternative protein methods. It just went towards trying to fix the problems in the meat industry. And then another reason is that we at the time started to invest in agricultural universities or land-grant universities that were also largely based on understanding agriculture that was, and, and people understood agriculture as being partly from animals. It was less so where we were seeing maybe cultivated mushrooms or things like that in the United States. So there's a lot of history behind why that happened. And those land-grant wow. universities have since become our state universities in the United States. Wow. Okay. So if we zoom Back forward to today, I want to jump into the product, but 
I'm curious. You make this discovery around what the fundamental problem is. This is a tooling problem. Mm-hmm. And so at this junction of time, as you're doing the mental Olympics, there's also a, a decision you make around fully verticalizing, right? You do like the engineering innovation plus the product. Mm-hmm. Or there's probably another pathway here, which is, hey, let's innovate on the Base lever, base layer of the stack, which is the infrastructure, and then support all the consumer-facing brands. Mm-hmm. Did was that a a hard decision that you had yes. to, to to walk through? <laughs> what was that kind of part of the process like? It was very hard. It was extremely difficult to understand how we can put together a company and a and a venture capital funded company that would allow us to realize the change we were looking to make. And it's not like industrial startups don't exist. They do. People get enormous amounts of money to create theoretical airplanes that don't show up for 15 years, things like that. The only problem is we didn't have 15 years. We, When I started this endeavor five years ago, the, the World Health Organization had just come out and said processed meat is a class 1A carcinogen. And even as little as three or four years ago, climate scientists were telling us we have 12 years. That's it. 12 years, you better do something about climate change or else it's a tipping point. It's not going back. You're going to live with fires and floods every day. And I mean, that's basically what we're seeing even right now. So we didn't have 12 years or pardon, we didn't even have 12 years, but we certainly didn't have long scale operations or availability to essentially slow walk the conversion of industrializing plant-based meat production. We needed to do it now. And so it was a hard decision, but with the help of advisors, we discussed a lot of different business models. And one of those business models and the one we went forward with is we are going to be a producer. And behind the scenes, we are going to make plant-based meat faster, better, and cheaper by developing the right equipment, deploying it for ourselves, and showing the world that it can be done cheaper, despite the fact that all that investment, over $3 billion and Impossible and beyond, have led to really good products, but they haven't led to cost reduction. We were going to make sure that we were the producer that proved out cost reduction in plant-based meat on a fundamental level. And that's why we had to create a, such a multifaceted company of both being a commercial operator, which we are in West Seattle. Mm-hmm. You're all welcome to come v- visit us. And then, and then as well as being a designer, builder, and deployer of plant-based meat production equipment that's novel to the industry. Krista, you have me so fired up right now. <laughs> okay. So let's – so we talked about what happens behind the scenes, right? That is – Truly zero to one operation. Now, let's put our, if we look at, I'm an end consumer. I don't really care what's happening behind the scenes. I just want a tasty piece of chicken. So what is the kind of abbreviated infomercial here? If I'm looking at Rebellious Foods products, what are the flagship products? And what are what is the taste profile of these things? What are they like? Yeah, we make actually seven different products. We make three 
products for food service, the chicken, the rebellious nugget, rebellious patty and rebellious tender. And then we make those same products for retail. So the rebellious patty, tender and nugget for um, grocery stores all across the US over 500 since the end of last year and growing daily. So um, mom and pop stores up and down the West Coast and soon to be in the New York area, um, already in the Midwest. So we're getting coverage and we're getting it fast considering we only launched in retail in June, which is amazing. We started the company as a food service operation, and then we were hit by a global pandemic. Uh, we also started the company with the goal of making plant-based chicken for school lunches, which we did in to launch in March of 2020, and then every school in the United States shut down. So that was unfortunate, to say the least. But we survived and we thrived because we were more than just a brand. We were more than even just an operator. We were a technology company that had a lot of work to do. And that's what we spent 2020 and 2021 doing was designing, building, and now deploying uh, new production systems. So the products that we have today that you'll find on the Rebellious website at Rebellious with a Y, R-E-B-E-L-L-Y-O-U-S.com will be our retail products. And they are scrumptious plant-based chicken products. So they have a very, I call it the kind of a country flavor, a little bit of a peppery breading. It's crispy, even if you put it in the oven, which we're really proud of, that's a big deal for us. One of the things we wanted to replicate about plant with animal-based chicken was the fact that you got this really crispy breading that stayed onto the chicken. And that is actually a manufacturing improvement. We make plant-based chicken where the breading stays on and is really a, a cohesive product. And that makes it much more palatable to consumers because they don't feel like the breading just falls off when they bite into it, just like it would happen when you're biting into animal-based chicken. It's a manufacturing problem because it's a quality problem that we have solved at scale. And that's what um, consumers can expect from a really high-quality, scrumptious, juicy, savory plant-based chicken product for food service and retail. Oh my God, yum. Then we also have a little lighter product called the Kickin' Nugget that we serve in the National School Lunch Program. Since September of last year, when schools started to open up, we started to serve. We now serve it in, I believe, 16 major school districts, reaching over a quarter million school kids. And this product is also a really good but light chicken flavor product, kind of low sodium product for kids. And it has a... um, cornbread breading coating to it. It's a little bit, you know, not, not as much seasoning because it's for kids and they don't always like pepper and things like that. But it, it is a lot of adults like it too, because it's a really clean flavor and it's just a really pure chicken flavor. And they really like that a lot as well. Wow. Quickly. And I have another side note, but is there a nice versus on the nutritional side of things? Like, Hey, I'm getting a Mickey D's nugget versus a rebellious nugget. Yes. What is there? Is there like, am I winning by choosing rebellious on the nutritional side? Absolutely. So a rebellious chicken nugget is not going to have any cholesterol versus an animal-based product. It definitely has a lot. Uh, re- plant-based and specifically rebellious's products have very low saturated fat. And saturated fat is something that is a micronutrient that doctors definitely want you to you know, avoid or keep low as much as possible. Much lower saturated fat than a chicken product. We have relatively the same or lower sodium 
sodium. People obviously like the taste of salt, but we try to go a little bit lower on sodium. Sometimes it's midway, depending on what you're looking at. And then of course, having a high quality product that has no antibiotics, didn't come from a chicken, has the consistency of a really high quality chicken product, but without the chicken is a real advantage of plant-based in general, but particularly of rebellious. Yum. I want to put a a bookmark here in the conversation for the listeners. When I was doing my prep for the interview, almost all of the interviews of of yourself, Christy, and and public information I found talked about go-to-market, which was like, hey, we're going to go to schools, hospitals, corporations, rather than retailers. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it's just interesting to hear you talk through this because, I mean, your entire go-to-market was rattled by the state of the world and you did it. Yes. You did it. So <laughs> we did. Uh, do you think that it is how – I'm curious. Comparing the two approaches, the glass half full, right, the optimistic perspective, do you feel like it has been – has it has worked in the company's favor long term? I think so. I mean for two reasons. First of all, we – as you alluded to – We were only a food service company, and we saw that as a real benefit given our multifaceted directive to create and deploy equipment as well. There's only so much you can do as a small startup, and we were doing it all. And so that was beneficial to just be in one market. Naturally, that very market was the one that was completely decimated, not just the institutions, but obviously all the schools shut down. And that was where we had really bet on because that's where we wanted to be. So literally, we lost all of our customers at the end when the pandemic hit in March 2020. And here in Seattle, oh my goodness, it was a whole month earlier than the rest of the country. And and so we saw it really early. I think within a month or two, we had already pivoted to retail. We came up with an interim package that um, that allowed us to sell our food service products in retail. We sold them to mom and pop stores for about a year. And then by that time, we had already started revamping our products for the retail market, got new packaging, got into the retail market and made that transition permanently. But where I think we truly win here is not just being in the retail market alongside the now coming back food service market, particularly the school lunch market. Where we win is in supply chain and labor shortages. Because fundamentally, the food industry has always struggled with the ability to, particularly the chicken industry, has always struggled with finding people to do the rather gruesome work of processing chicken. And But it's not that different for other places who are processing plant-based products or just food industry jobs in general. It, it can be difficult to find really qualified and passionate people who are looking to work on the production floor. Where we benefit is that because we developed a new production system that reduces labor on the production line by 50% and are now deploying that new production system, We're going to win, not just because we're lowering the cost, but because we can now operate our production line or will soon in the next couple of months be able to operate our production line with half the number of people that we would have if we were a big retail, you know, big producer of chicken, animal based chicken or even making plant based chicken. They would need a lot more labor to do it. And as a result, in a world where labor shortages is our biggest problem right now, I mean, some people feel like even all the supply chain issues are nothing 
more than just a, a um, ripple effect from the labor industry shortages, that makes perfect sense that we're gonna we can win by providing not just a, a lower labor solution, but also a better labor solution. So for the people who were working in that production facility and who will work in our production facility now who do the hard work of measuring out ingredients and cleaning up and taking care of the equipment. It is a lot of work. And while we consider all of those people a part of our research team and a part of our our fundamental core business um, team, they are the ones that end up doing a lot of the harder labor. It's, it's a lot of work. You work on your feet, you work with your hands. And being able to deploy this automated production system makes that job a lot easier. It doesn't necessarily have to make it go away, but it also makes it so they can produce a lot more in a smaller amount of time. It makes it a much nicer environment because they can work in a non-chilled environment. And overall, we're fundamentally changing the, the back, the, the core of manufacturing and that's where we win from doing the things that we did and having the, the business model we did coming out of the pandemic. Wow. Wow. I mean, truly, I'm 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 blown away by all the unlocks here across the board. Christy, what I want to do and before we get to the bookends, I'll ask I'll give you the red carpet to make some ask to to the listeners or the audience. But I'd love to do a quick lightning round if you're up okay. for it. Sure. Mm. So while you were at Dynamic Structures, <laughs> on your LinkedIn, you said you worked as a design engineer on two separate projects, the 30-meter telescope and a custom four-dop robot roller coaster. <laughs> yeah. So you got to tell us, what was this robot roller coaster? It was the next generation Harry Potter ride. <laughs> What was it? I mean, how did it? You what know, was Universal the... Studios. Yes, that was it. <laughs> no. Anyway, it's so long ago. I assume I'm not saying something I should have, but yeah, yeah. So it, we were working on roller coaster rides on multi-axis robots, and that later became the Harry Potter ride at Universal Studios. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was wow. small part of it. I was doing I think station design. So I That's the credit so cool. the credit goes to so many other engineers. <laughs> oh my god. But yeah, I did have wow. a really good time working on the 30 meter telescope project, which was a passion of mine in the aerospace industry. It, as a lot of people know who are also following the James Webb Space Telescope and the 30 meter telescope. 30 meter telescope I think is still under under development, even uh -huh. all these years later, but it's supposed to be up on Mauna Kea as another, as one of the world's largest telescopes to be able to see well outside of our universe, well outside of our solar system. So, no big deal. No big deal. Christy, but this I is actually, so cool. I did actually work on the James Webb Space Telescope too, very briefly as an intern. <laughs> what? So there were so many people who worked on that project and it was like a decade behind the schedule. So I don't know if any of my stuff made it onto flight, but I, and I was just an intern at the time. I was taking data for the backside actuators for the mirror actuators. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> oh my God. Also, apologies for the sirens in the background. No I don't problem. know if you can hear them. No problem. I can't. Oh, okay. 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 So next question is... Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so distracted. Okay. So the, the next question is, so we've had a couple guests on the pod who are also 
Good Food Institute alum. I didn't quite realize this at the time, but I, I now that I have the opportunity to both have you on the pod and realize a common thread, hmm. has the Good Food Institute become a quasi-Y Combinator or springboard for food tech entrepreneurship? I mean, there's got it. There's so much. There's so many cool people coming out of the institute. I don't know what drew you there, and I, I believe that's not what they position themselves as. But what drew you to the institute, and how pivotal was that to the whole process here? Yeah, it's a good question. I the, I was drawn to the institute before it was the institute. First of all, I was an advocate for a wide variety of animal issues, and was interested in getting into the plant based or clean meat space at the time. And the Good Food Institute hadn't really been set up yet, but there were people working on it. There was a variety of people who founded the Good Food Institute were starting to work on what it might look like. I volunteered my time to just see if I could help. And eventually they got funding and decided to move forward with a um, an opportunity for senior scientists. And that's when I left my job at Boeing and came to work as a as one of the first employees at the Good Food Institute alongside a handful of other people. But it didn't actually exist that far before our group was hired. But I know that they were working very hard to set it up before that. But in oh. general, so it was a very early days. And like I said, even before there was like a website and stuff like that, there, there were volunteers like myself who were, were just helping out, obviously not doing the, the core hard work of setting up an organization like that. I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I knew I wanted to work on large-scale meat production. I knew I wanted to make a big difference. I knew I wanted to start a company. One way of starting and, and learning about the opportunity was to take this job on a temporary basis, That of which I fully declared I would be there temporarily, help see where I could be helpful to help set up a nonprofit, see where I could be effective. Had a really good time in the year and a half or so that I was there where I was, I helped set up the Alt Meat Lab at UC Berkeley. I ran a research project around different types of proteins for plant-based meat, supported all sorts of white paper development that I think still exists today. I'm not really sure. (laughs) And met with lots of entrepreneurs, really learned how to support them. And so it was a wide variety of efforts that introduced me essentially to the industry, although I was pretty familiar with it even before I went to the Good Food Institute. And I was very busy at the Good Food Institute. So in my free time from that job, I really started to think about what is the company that I would like to start? And one thing that really struck me working at the Good Food Institute was that advocacy is a good thing. I truly believe in advocacy. I truly believe it's a good way to make a difference in the world. But I had these other skill sets. I wanted to deploy them. I wanted to use them for in some way to actually solve some major problems if I could. If not, maybe that wasn't the solution. And one of the things that I found really couldn't be addressed with advocacy was scale. (laughs) And scale is a really difficult issue because in the United States alone, we produce over 108 billion pounds of animal-based meat. And yet the plant-based meat industry today is only one half of 1% of that volume, meaning that the vast majority of Americans don't have access to meat replacements, nor do they eat them at any kind of frequent basis like they do animal meat. And so I was really perplexed by that particular problem. And you can't really advocate your way into that that problem, especially when it's a fundamental problem of using the wrong tools or things like that. And when I really started to think about it, it was no longer a topic for the Good Food Institute. And that's what eventually I decided to jump off and do and start my own company was to deploy that idea because it's not an advocacy issue anymore. Mm -hmm. It's a it's an execution issue. You've teed up my last question quite nicely. 
So you've explored, I mean, really the entire idea maze, right? You're exposed to all of these different early inklings of ideas or DCs. And so I warned you before we started, and now is the opportune time, which is around this notion of the idea graveyard. One idea that you'd love to work on if you had the time to do, but for now is just rotting away in your idea graveyard. Can I say two of them? I hate to say it's rotting away in that graveyard because I definitely nurture both of them. But within the plant-based meat space, I really do think that we don't have enough people working on unique food safety aspects of plant-based meat. And if I had an extra $3 million, I would set up an independent lab working just on that. Food safety and plant-based meat production is a really unique question. It can be handled effectively, but not handled efficiently by using standard methodologies for meat production, food safety. And so if I had more money and more time and effort, I would spend the money on that because wow. it's, a, it's an important issue. It's not something that's like necessarily putting anybody at risk. It's just that we don't understand it as an industry. And, and if we did, it, it, it's not being widely shared if, if there are some people who have a better understanding of it. So this goes everything from understanding how food safety impacts is impacted by cooking, holding, handling, things like that. There's just not really good information out there and why and how it's different than handling meat. And so that's in our graveyard, so to speak. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then I really do believe that we we have to thrive in, I, if I had to start another company that's sitting off on the side, it would be, I have two like endeavors that I would do if I wasn't doing this. So I consider uh -huh. that like the graveyard, but set aside for now. Uh -huh. One of them would be to provide, start a company for unlimited access for human population control, birth control, access for women. That would be actually one of the most impactful things we could do, not just for women, but for families, for climate change, for the opportunity for poverty, um, is literally just to give women low-cost access to any birth control that they need. So I would start a company around that. There are some really good companies, but I really do believe that so many of our issues in the world are exacerbated by the fact that a lot of people, particularly women, do not have a lot of choices about whether or not they mm -hmm. become mothers and then they get stuck in situations where they can't be more supportive of their lifestyle. That's really hard and it's something that could be solved with a company as well. <laughs> and now with the whole, with the new legislation, right? The new telemedicine legislation that's permanent. Yes. I mean, that's a big deal too. That's a big win. Yes, exactly. It's really exciting because yeah, providing um, women with information. I mean, I feel like I'm one of the few women on this planet who actually gets to get up in the morning and decide what they want to do every day. And unfortunately, that's still a rare thing in the vast majority of the world and even in the United States, unfortunately. I would start a company to, to better support women because it, it serves all of our goals. It, mm -hmm. it serves that when women get to choose their reproductive health, they choose to have less children, they choose to support themselves better, we choose to take better care of those children. They choose to create families that are more cohesive. So it's a really important thing that we could solve a social justice issues and they choose to feed those children better mm -hmm. because they can afford to. So I think it, it's something that we can think about from a climate change perspective is understanding that population control is not a top down effort. It is very much a empowering, empowering men and women to decide about their family size before, before it's too late, so to speak. So wow. that's one thing I would do. That's a great one. Thank you. Uh -huh. Thank you. The other thing I would do 
is if I did not have a job and didn't feel very passionate about what I did or and then did that other company, I would I would do in Washington or any other state what Stacey Abrams did in Georgia. <laughs> I would just sign people would up to you? vote. I would just sign people up to vote all day. <laughs> Because that democracy is- matters so much. And I don't care where you, who you're going to vote for, just vote because it matters more that you do it than who you vote. I mean, it matters who you vote for. Don't get me wrong. But but it's just such an important thing that people understand that control of their own life happens at many levels. And what I love about what Stacey Abrams has done in Georgia and other advocates for voting rights have done across the board is that fundamentally, when you involve everyone, when you care about the people who wouldn't be able to afford plant-based meat if you didn't make it cost-effective, when you involve everybody in democracy, you get a fair, a much fairer economy, you get a much fairer and prosperous society. And so that's what mm-hmm. I would do if I wasn't doing this. <laughs> wow. Three for three. <laughs> Christy, at the bookends of every conversation, I just like to roll out the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that you want to ask or leave with our listeners, the floor is yours. Yeah. So we have some great opportunities at Rebellious Foods. We are hiring across the spectrum. So if you're interested in food production, you can come and be a food technician. You can even be a come and be a guest helper to see what it's like. You could even do just a couple shifts a week. You can, which we have lots of people who do that just for fun, learning how to make plant-based meat and assist the technicians. So we have a guest helper program. You can check that out on our website at rebellious with a Y, um, O-U-S dot and and then we have engineers. We're looking for control systems engineers, senior design engineers, deployment engineers. We have quality assurance and food safety professionals that we're looking for. So we're really looking to scale up this year. So we have a lot of great opportunities uh, in warehouse, supply chain. And so the opportunity is endless. You literally could not find a job at Rebellious that doesn't cover your like area of expertise. Oh, I guess we don't write software. Sorry. But we do need a control <laughs> systems engineer. But we do such a wide variety of things and bringing it all together takes a lot of really smart and passionate people. And we love passionate people. That's what you're that's why you come to Rebellious is because when you want to get boots on the ground experience in a COVID safe environment, everybody's vaccinated and boosted and masked. We we still operate our facility in a very safe environment. You can come out and and really make a difference, help move the needle and and work on really interesting stuff at the same time. It lives in the name. I mean, you've manifested it in the name. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Christy, it has been such a pleasure putting face to name. I am so pumped for all of your success so far that you are the shepherd, the champion behind all of the cool and necessary things being worked on now. I wish you the best of luck. Uh, I know you don't need it, but I'm I'm still gonna say it. <laughs> I'll take the and luck. <laughs> I I cannot wait if if we ever want to do a round two next year or whenever there's another big milestone, I am here ready to rock. Sure, sure. Maybe we could do a tour of the facility or something if you ever want. Yes. To do that. All right. Sounds cool. great. Well, thank, thank you, you so Christy. much. <laughs> thank you. Take Bea. care. Take care. Bye. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. 
we're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday. Thank you.